We're going to continue our sermon series looking at First Peter, uh, and this week we're, we're reading uh, a wee bit of chapter 3 and then some of chapter 4. If you can remember a few weeks ago, we didn't get to finish looking at the, the part in chapter 3, um, and you know, the Lord's ways are better than our ways, and it actually works out better that we're, we're doing it this way because it prepares us for coming to the Lord's table next Sunday. Um, so you'll find the, 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 the verses on page 1016, and we're reading firstly from chapter 3. Uh, reading from verse 18 down to verse 22. And then we're going to look at chapter 4 and we're going to read from verse 12 down to verse 19. Let's listen to God's word together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Then we're going to pick up at verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let no, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. Don't worry, we're not going to be looking at the angels stuff again this morning. We did that a few weeks, and if you weren't here, then I'd encourage you to go back and to hear what Peter is speaking about when he talks about preaching to the imprisoned spirits. Uh, and we, we thought about, though, how ultimately what the whole point of that was, was that Peter is showing us that, that even the very pits of hell know that it is finished, that Jesus is victorious. We pick up, firstly, from verse 12 of chapter 4. And I want to ask you this question as we begin. Do you take God at his word? Do you take God at his word? There are people we meet in this life and we trust them because of what they say. Because we have that relationship and we, we, we believe they're trustworthy. We believe that when they say something, when they say they're going to do it, we know that they're going to do it. So do you take God at his word? Peter begins in verse 12, this new section, which again is still looking at Christians who suffer. And really, again, it's, it's looking at kind of persecution that the church might endure and go through as we walk in this life. And he begins by saying, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. 
Imagine if rather than us praying, God, why are you doing this? God, why are you letting this happen? God, where are you in the midst of my persecution? This is hard. That actually we would pray, God, I know this is hard. I know that this weighs heavy upon me. I know that this is difficult, but I know that you are there. Lord, shape me through this trial. If the clay stays on the shelf, it never becomes pottery. For it to become pottery, it needs to go into the fire. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Years he spent in jail. Why? Because God had forgotten him? Absolutely not. God was doing a work in Joseph's life. He was making him from that kind of clay into the, the pottery that God had intended Joseph to be. And there's this beautiful verse though in chapter 38 of Genesis that says, But the Lord was with Joseph. Friends, the Lord is with you. Even in the fiery trials you go through. Know that the Lord is with you. He's shaping you. C.H. Spurgeon said that we, we cannot always trace God's hand, but we can always trust God's heart. Do you take God at his word? Peter here, when he mentions fiery trial, he's probably referring back to Proverbs 27, which says fire is the means of testing silver and gold. Fire is the means of testing silver and gold. And this imagery is, is furthered that, that actually God has a plan in this. It's not that, that God was naive and he didn't know what was going to happen to us, but that actually God was in the midst of all of the fiery trials that we go through in this life. That actually there's a refining that takes place that can only take place in the fire. He talks about... In verse 12, it says, when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. That word test you could be to prove you. To show, to highlight, to strengthen your faith. Friends, persecution isn't just a possibility. Persecution is a likely outcome for those who stand up for Christ and his word. For those who strive for God's holiness, we will be met, as we thought about last week, we will be met with hostility in this world. So don't be surprised, Sandy Hills, when the fiery trial comes. But remember, just as God is with Joseph, God is with us. And there's a testing, there's a proving that takes place. As Proverbs 37 says, 27 says, sorry, that it's the means, fire is the means for testing silver and gold. It's good for believers to know that there will be bumps on the road. Being a Christian isn't a bed of roses. And it's good for us to know that because when those bumps come, we don't have a faith crisis. And we don't ask, oh, oh man alive, what's going on here? I've never had experienced this kind of stuff before. You know, have I done something wrong? Has, has God abandoned me? Is, is he not with me anymore? Is he taking his hand off me? Friends, we know that trials and persecution and, and bumps in the road come. But even though we come, we know that we're secure in Christ. 
And knowing that means that we can be ready and prepared as we thought about last Sunday. Friends, we know that ultimately if we bear the cross of Christ in this world, we will wear the crown of glory in the one that is to come. If you bear the cross of Christ in this world, there is a crown awaiting you in glory. It's worth suffering for Christ because we know that ultimately, and again, as Peter and we see the New Testament writers do this, they look forward. They don't look here right now. They look forward to the blessing that awaits the bride of Christ. That there's a day coming. We've seen Peter do this time and time again. And he talks about that we will be blessed. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not all suffering, though, is blessed. And Peter gives a list about ways that we shouldn't suffer in this life. We, we shouldn't become a murderer or, or things like that. He gives that list in verses 15 through to verse 16. But to suffer for Christ, to suffer for Christ's sake, to suffer for Christ's kingdom, ultimately there's a blessing that awaits God's people. And in that, we shouldn't be ashamed of bearing the cross of Christ in this life. But we should have faith, be bold, be courageous, know that the Lord our God is with us, whatever we go through, whatever we go. And in all of it, we're to ultimately give God the glory. These verses from verses 12 to 19 could ultimately be summed up as uh, the most simplest way as I could put it is that Peter is calling Christians to suffer joyfully in accordance with God's will. And again, we think, well, how can we suffer joyfully? How can suffer and joy go together? And we thought about last week, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again. We can do that. We can know suffering and still rejoice in Christ because our joy isn't found in the absence of suffering, but it's found in the presence of Jesus. That's where our joy is found. So we will suffer in this life. Don't be surprised when it comes. Peter then in verse 14 gives a specific example of suffering for Christ. When you're insulted. Being insulted. And and the Greek here doesn't just point to a one-off name calling. But it's a, a continuing insulting. As you are continually insulted for my sake. As people ridicule you for Christ. What does verse 14 say? You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The insulting is continual in the Greek. But the amazing thing, friends, is so is that blessing. It is you are blessed. It is a state. That is who you are. No matter what fiery trial you go through, you, because of Christ, Sandy Hills are blessed. And so too is the covering of the Holy Spirit. That too is continual. All these things are continual here in verse 14. So if you are being insulted, you are blessed. It's a state. That's who you are. You are a blessed people. And God's Spirit is resting upon you. This Spirit of glory. Friends, what we have right now through the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of what will be fully ours in eternity. It is but a foretaste. 
Then Peter in verse 17 says something very interesting. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This idea of the household of God, remember I said as we way, way back when we started First Peter, that, that Peter refers to um, and quotes from and uh, kind of alludes to the Old Testament a lot. He does it numerous times, time and time and time again. Well, he's doing it here again because this understanding, the idea of the household of God points back to the Old Testament understanding of the temple. And, and what the idea here is that, that judgment starts with the, the temple or judgment starts with the household of God. I think the NIV captures it beautifully, but it says that judgment starts with the family of God. It starts with God's people. However, this word judgment isn't like condemnation. This word judgment here points to a judgment that can have good and bad evaluations. When we think about judgment, we think about it in a, in a negative way. But here, there, there's, there could be good outcomes and there could be bad outcomes from the, this judgment. And again, it's pointing back to this refining fire that we go through, knowing that just because we're going through fiery trials... It doesn't mean that it's because of bad stuff. It's because that God ultimately is refining us and making us more like Christ. It's how silver and gold are tested as Proverbs said. This refining fire of God starts with us as his people. And we're not destroyed by it. But rather we're purified through it and made more like Christ. Our faith is strengthened and our desire for holiness grows. I reckon, I don't know, I'm inferring here, I wouldn't be surprised though if, as Peter was penning this, if he's thinking about Malachi chapter 3. This is what Malachi chapter 3 says. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. How can we be safe from the just and perfect judgment of God? Well, I think it goes back to what the essence of chapter 3 verses 18 to 22, is all about. In chapter 3, verse 20, how can we be safe from the judgment of God? How can we stand before a pure and perfect God, the just judge? How can we stand before him and be safe? How can we get through that? It goes back to what Peter is saying in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. But they, and that's the spirits in prison, we thought about that a few weeks ago, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We see God in Genesis 6. As part of his judgment, he floods the whole world, the whole earth. And Peter is saying here that only eight people survived that. Only eight people passed through that judgment that God found. How? How were those eight persons saved? Peter tells us, by being found in the ark. Friends, God cannot look upon sin. He can't look upon sin. That's why we sing the line in how deep the Father's love for us, that the Father turned his face away. As wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory, as our sins were placed upon him, upon Christ, the Father couldn't look upon those sins and he turned his face away. Friends, judgment will come. There's a day coming, and we thought about it last week again, where Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And it starts now with the house of God, where God is refining his people to be more like their Savior, to be more like the Christ, to be more like his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But one day we will all stand before Christ in judgment. And Peter referencing Noah and the ark here, friends, it is truly beautiful. Don't miss what he's saying. Don't miss what he's doing. For the ark is a picture of Christ. The ark is a prophetic declaration of what the Messiah would one day do for God's people. Just as Noah and his family survived God's judgment with the flood in Genesis 6. Friends, we survive God's wrath only by found, being found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah's ark is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. They were only saved by being found in the ark. Friends, we are only saved by being found in Jesus just as all this wickedness was going around on around Noah and his family, they put their faith in God and they were saved by being found in the ark. Just as God saved Noah by the ark. God, friends, has not offered us an ark. He's not offered us a rescue boat. He's offered us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the ark saved those eight people, and as I said, it's a prophetic image of what Jesus would one day do and what Jesus has done for us. And then Peter says that baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, and he's not saying that baptism has any magical powers, that, that to be uh, saved you need to be baptized. That's not what he's saying here. What he's pointing at is the image and, and what baptism shows us is that union with Christ. We're only saved by union with Jesus Christ. And how did Christ save us? And with this, we turn our hearts and our minds towards the Lord's table next Sunday. We have these most incredible words in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
Why? Why did Christ suffer? Why did the righteous take the unrighteous place? Peter tells us in black and white that he might bring us to God. Never, ever be unsure as to why Jesus came. He came to bring you to God. Just as the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go seeking after that one lost sheep. Friends, you are, you were that one lost sheep. It's why the good shepherd came to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also suffered. And we can remember that Peter has been speaking a lot in his letter about suffering. And he's writing to Christians, to followers of Jesus who are going through really, really difficult times. And he looks to encourage them by saying, look, church, I, I know that you're suffering. I know you're going through hardships. I know you're going through trials. I know that things are hard. But we have a high priest. And he knows what you're going through. He suffered as well. He suffered also. But friends, there's a uniqueness in Christ's suffering. And that uniqueness is that he is perfect. The righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered for and because of your sins. In my place condemned he stood. Can you say that this morning? Is that your testimony? Can you say that in my place condemned he stood? All you have to do is ask him to forgive you. It's all you have to do. All we need to do to be saved is to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done it all. He suffered for you. Past tense. It's completed. It's finished. Even the pits of hell know it. so simple. But friends, we all need to be saved, every single one of us. As Isaiah 53 says in verses 6 and 7, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Christ also suffered once for sins. The sin offering that we needed. It never needed to be replicated. It never needed to be done again. The day of atonement. It's done. Christ has suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. And in those verses in Isaiah 53 and in our verse in, in chapter 3 verse 18 of 1 Peter, we see this most beautiful exchange take place at the cross of Calvary. Our sins, our unrighteousness, placed upon him 
the sinless, spotless Lamb of God in exchange to give those who put their faith in Him life everlasting. Can you believe it? That He who knew no sin became sin for us. That He who knew no sin became sin for you. He who made man became fully man to bear our unrighteousness so we could be clothed in his righteousness. Can you believe it that the shepherd became a sheep so his sheep could enjoy their shepherd's blessing? The sinless, spotless lamb of God. He's also the good shepherd and he laid down his life for his sheep. By becoming a sinless, spotless lamb and taking my place, your place, bearing your sins, bearing your unrighteousness. Why? Because he loves you. So that you can be brought back to the heavenly father, bringing us to God. The result and the purpose of his death was to reunite us with God the father. A harvest of souls won by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the perfect for the imperfect, the sinless for the sinners, the creator for his created, the shepherd for his sheep, took my sins. Not just the ones I have committed, but the ones I'm going to commit as well. They've all been placed upon him. He took my unrighteousness. And I have the audacity to question his love for me. To question his commitment for me. And, and sometimes, friends, I wonder, is he worth it? Is he worth the ridicule? Is he worth the name calling? Is he worth the sleepless nights? And then I'm brought back to the foot of the cross. And I'm reminded that he took all that should have been mine so I could have all that is his. He took my sin so I could have his salvation. He took my guilt so I could share in his glory. And friends, this is why the virgin birth matters. We'll speak about it. We speak about it every Christmas. And this is why it matters. Because Jesus wasn't born of man. Because if he was born of a man, he wouldn't have been sinless. But because he was born of the virgin and through the activity of the Holy Spirit, he is born in perfect. He's born sinless and he remains sinless as he fulfills the law of God and in how he lived. Something, friends, we could never do. And in his obedience to God, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And Isaiah prophesied all that Christ would endure. In Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Friends, this is speaking about the Son of God. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The righteous for the unrighteous. Friends, this is the gospel. That Jesus died in your place. So that you could have life and all the glory that belonged to him. You share in it as part of your inheritance through your adoption into God's family through faith in Christ and his atoning works. You can have your presbytery plans and your presbytery meetings and your unity constitutions and church politics and games and questions about hymns and tunes and all these things. Friends, none of that matters. Just give me Jesus. He's all we need. He's what you need. He's what you've always needed. And you might say, well, I'm not worthy. You might say, I don't deserve that. Friend, you are 100% correct. You aren't worthy. And you don't deserve it. And that is why Isaiah says our God is rich in mercy. Because despite my lack of goodness, despite my lack of worthiness, despite all I had done, Christ hung on the cross and God placed in his love upon Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, all your sins. The shepherd died for his sheep. I don't know how to simplify it anymore. But I do know that this morning Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And he says, I've died in your place. What more can I do? Heaven has given all it has. It's given its best for you. All you have to do is come to him in faith and trust in his completed works and rest in the, in, in the victory of the cross of Calvary. Because as we thought about, as we'll think of it next week, friends, our God is not dead. He is alive. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Let us pray. God, we ask that right now that the scales would fall from our eyes. Lord, you've brought us to the foot of your cross this morning where Jesus died. The righteous for the unrighteous. The shepherd for his sheep. God, I thank you that it is finished. God, I thank you that all we have to do is come to you in faith. Jesus, would you knock on the door of our hearts this morning if we haven't come to you as our Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would give at least one person courage this morning to ask Jesus into their life. To ask Jesus to forgive them for their sins.
We thank you that forgiveness is possible because the shepherd died for his sheep, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the imperfect. God, I pray this morning that we can say, in my place condemned he stood, hallelujah, what a savior. God, we love you, but only because you first loved us. Lord, help us, as Alistair Biggs says, to keep the main thing the main thing. Give us eyes that are solely fastened upon Jesus. For Jesus, you are the door. You are the one that has that living water. And you have the words of eternal life, Lord. To whom else can we go? We ask these things in your precious name, Lord. Amen.